Look, I got, I've got like five people in my life that I don't work with. I I have to start making allowances for work friends, <laughs> or I'll have no one. I'll have this podcast. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I like I had a bad experience once with um, um, I had a bad experience once. I took an Uber, uh, like across town with a a very kind and well-meaning, um, Driver. gentleman. Uh, who was somewhat new to Canada and uh, you know small talk happens and he's like what do you do for a living and I was like I'm an editor oh perfect God sent you to me because I'm yes. writing a, a manuscript I'm writing I'm writing a story about my life and about how to help other people's lives and I need someone to edit and I was like <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, uh, oh, I'm like contractually obligated. I cannot edit your work. He's like, no, no, no. God sent you to me. And I was like, I can't. That's, I won't. Oh, that's frustrating. And if you're not going to pay me, I especially won't. And he didn't take it as an answer. So when he dropped me off, I, I strategically got him to drop me off away from my house. Um, he used his powers of Uber to access my phone number. I thought you meant of like religion. No, he didn't use his his Jesus powers. He used his powers of cell phone and Uber to text me regularly uh, <laughs> and and try to set up dates. No! Try to set up dates where he's like, "Hey, I'm going to this coffee shop today at this time. You must come." So now I don't tell people shit. Like, Mike, I don't tell people did nothing. Did you report him? Uh, I blocked him. I didn't report him because I I didn't. I didn't get like molestery energy or like violent energy, but like no, but that's still like he's abusing yeah, Uber app. I I like, it's still it's, not it's cool. one of those things. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where like I don't want him to lose his job, but if he were to do this with someone who is truly at risk, I'd be like, you got to lose your fucking job. Wow. I don't know. I I I, I probably should have. I didn't. Yeah, you you just don't want to get involved. I get it. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. I just, I just learned my lesson. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth, and one of us always lies. No running in the hallway. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. saying the thing <laughs> are, we've already <laughs> we've already messed it up <laughs> it's fine <laughs> i like joseph mm. oh you like his npr voice yeah do it out um <clears throat> hello and welcome to fans labyrinth the podcast where we watch your favorite indie films and genre pictures i am lydia and i'm here with my two co-hosts Joseph and Dev. Yo, it's official. That's a good way to do it with the two <laughs> names, and then yeah, Lydia I figured could, it out. I literally couldn't think of another way to do it where it wasn't no, you're sound right. fucking stupid. <laughs> We've all listened to podcasts before. We know how it goes. Yeah. I, and Ugh. yet I immediately forget how to do it. We've been <laughs> we've been doing this. I swear to God, for over a year now. It's a hot and mic. I, well, just this podcast, and then we have yeah. It's no, we don't talk history. about the other one. It's the hot mic. Well, we there's that, and then the we also one. have like we've had movie night for like five years now. Yeah, but I don't introduce us for movie <laughs> nights. <laughs> for sure. We've been practicing every night as we watch yeah. movies. 
<laughs> and tonight I'm here with uh, Lydia. You do this every week. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. still it's just, just me. Us. You have no we're other like, friends. We're, like, we're sloppily eating our two dollar noodles, oh, yeah. and then it's like, oh yeah, the introduction. Okay, before the movie starts. All the ghosts who haunt your apartments are very pleased, though. I'm just gonna do a quick vape Honestly, outside, yeah. and then we'll get started. <laughs> Seriously, considering I live in this shitty old brownstone, there's got to be at least one nun ghost in Oh, here. at least. Mm. Yeah. Nun ghosts are uh, plentiful. Oh, my God. My waveforms well, became yeah. huge. You loud today, boy. Just like my dick. Yo! I'm just... You know, oh, God. You guys can't see it I'm at home, close but, to the mic. but we can. It's like on a spool, like a garden <laughs> hose. It's, uh, it's behind Lydia. <laughs> no, Lydia's enormous dick. <laughs> yeah, Lydia's enormous yeah. cock. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess <laughs> <laughs> I have big dick energy. I think we can all agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, beyond big, uh, if you if you use like the D and D scale of things, where it's like big, large, colossal, gargantuan, titanic, probably somewhere on that later end of the scale. I would not want gargant- gargantuan. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of gargantuan dicks. <laughs> Um, who wants to open this uh, this lobster up? Oh God, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> how about yeah, how about you, Des? What have you have you have you been watching anything? I have doing anything. I have. Do we want to start with? Um, <gasps> I, Actually, watch stuff. Yeah, yeah. I I, oh, I hate <gasps> watching things. Um, I, <laughs> I I don't think either of these um, the things that I've gotten up to. I'll split them up. Uh, we're we're like probably on anyone's like anyone's minds lately but i watched uh the entire matrix trilogy again uh what why wouldn't that be that's like on everyone's mind okay so i so i only saw the trailer afterwards Mm. so this wasn't like a me preparing for like the new matrix because i'm actually like pretty averse to uh, resurrecting uh, things like this, I'm 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 not going to get into. Not a fan of the twenty years later. Sequel. No, I'm not going to get into the hot take because I I do have strong opinions, but I want people to still have their things and be happy. And I know that at least one of us is somewhat excited for the new Matrix movie. <laughs> I, I just I don't know. I it's not me. I, I think the I I uh, I who's who? What guests do we have here? What are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> I thought Joseph. I thought you were excited about. Uh, no, I yeah no we okay. yeah, it is. I'm just being like. <laughs> just being catty uh <laughs> i <laughs> i um i jest i'm i'm not okay here, one sec i'm like i'm i am excited for it but like of course it's gonna be bad i'm just like oh, I never you know said that. it's just it's the fun more to bring you, in, yeah the more you need to defend your choices oh my God. This looks. <laughs> see i never said it was bad i just i'm 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 just wary of things that play on things that make me feel good Mm-hmm. And and, yeah, and like yeah. that, I know yeah, that whole trend of like we did like the seventies nostalgia movies in like the nineties. Mm-hmm. We did the eighties nostalgias in the in the two thousands, and we're still kind of doing it with like Power Rangers movies and shit. Mortal Kombat, yeah, Mortal Kombat, Power Rangers. There, there, no, there was. I saw this, but it no, was, that was a couple no. years ago. There is after we just talked about the Super uh, Super Mario Bros. movie, and now I don't think we mentioned it, but there is a Super Mario yeah. movie coming out. And like, yeah, there is. As soon as something plays... Oh, with Chris Pratt. He's so cool. Cast as Mario. He's so cool. That was the worst fucking... Oh, God. The casting for that movie is like... If you if you Wild. showed me that picture of Chris Pratt with the name Mario underneath, uh, if you showed it to me outside of the context of Nintendo Direct, I would have thought it was a meme. That shit is funny. How <laughs> dare you? How dare you cast 
Jack Black in the animated Super Mario's movie and not cast him as fucking Mario. Yeah. What are you but doing? But also, like, how do you not do a Mario movie and just cast Bob Hoskins again? Um, uh, and John Leguizamo. He's, he's, um, he's, they're, they're mm-hmm. both so old but, and weird but now. But Mario's at least... What 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 what? I think he has his thirty fifth anniversary recently. Hmm. Yeah, Bob Hoskins is like seventy. Hey, but I'm I'm just saying, like Mario <laughs> was probably. That's actually probably not true. <laughs> he just looks really yeah. bad. Yeah, don't we all? He's pro- he's just probably me. like 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 fifty maybe. He's probably like a low fifty, <laughs> but he looks rough. Okay, fair. So so maybe we'll leave Bob Hoskins <laughs> out. Um, so I watched the Matrix movies. Oh right. Not to like cash in on those nostalgia bucks, but because I legitimately enjoy uh, the first and third one. I know that this, that latter latter half of the statement is probably controversial. Yeah, weird choice. The second the second one is like it it is truly the uh, action packed redheaded stepchild. Yeah, I I know what you're saying. Like I I like all three. I think because it's like one and three are the more serious. Like have critical interest or whatever whereas but two is a very watchable fun like it has a lot of iconic moments yeah yeah i just feel like three is the least entertaining it is for sure the third third, the third like even if it's technically good it's like it's not even it's just like it has the cool speeches they finally explain a lot of the stuff so people who actually love the world like and i do too and that's and that's why i like it i just like finally getting the explanation for what's yeah. going on if you need a whole movie of exposition just to explain what the fuck happened know? in your trilogy like you didn't write a good trilogy that's what yeah. i'm oh, saying it's certainly not a great trilogy but that's my same feelings for the last lord of the rings movie it's you know prob- that one's actually probably the most well made of all the lord of the rings but it's literally just oh. you know, yeah, explanations last, and conclusions the last like 40 minutes of it are, are rough it's it's a lot of just it's a really long epilogue and even in the book like even yeah, if we don't I think they did as good as they we could with it. it. Yeah. But Fellowship is still, I still so love tight. It, but front to yeah. front to back, that movie's tight. Um so I watched the Two <laughs> Towers is the best movie. Oh, through through Which and is through. The most entertaining through one. Through. But it is also objectively the best because it's the tightest narrative. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty concentrated. I don't know if I fully yeah. agree, but I do think it is probably the most watchable of the three. I just feel like Fellowship has the like Fellowship is almost all prologue. And then the journey starts like halfway through and you're like, okay, great. To be fair, the whole journey um, is prologue. And, <laughs> well, fair enough. But like, and and you have the same problem with Return of the King where it's like almost all epilogue and you're like, can they just get the fuck back to the Shire already? Yeah. I'm over this. Yeah. It, it, Whereas Two Towers is like a really tight interconnected story with the other two books, but it's like a closed loop. It's got the best pacing and it does so much with all yeah. the characters that the first movie didn't have time for. That's for sure. Yeah, I feel like you get um, you get a lot of character growth, and I think that's actually the inverse for the Matrix trilogy because, like, the first one, it's like here's your characters. The third movie is like here's the world, both inside the core of the world and outside of it. And the second movie is like mm-hmm. here's just the Matrix, like the the place with fighting and like great sets and good action and like great actors. You know, that's the one with like the Merovingian being all French and horny. But yeah, I just I just rewatched them because I needed to, and uh, it was that time, and yeah, they still hold up. The CG doesn't, no. but yeah. but the movies still hold up. They're so goddamn good. Sorry, they're just they're interesting, like in their ri- the quote unquote richness in the sense that like what people talk about in them is always interesting to me. In that like 
there's so many different takes and so many different reasons people watch them now. Like I've always watched them as like world building exercises. Mm -hmm. Like I love the matrix idea and like the in out of the world, the, the pill, you know, which pill do you take? Blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people enjoy those, the, the first and second movies, especially as action movies. Yeah. And when I think back, I'm like, yeah, obviously, like actually there's like an unbelievable amount of action. Mm -hmm. There's literal mm -hmm. Kung Fu oh, in yeah. the first one. And it's tastefully represented to you. It's not just like, here's another fight. And there's bullet time and whatnot. Yeah. And that, you know, that's an iconic thing that that has been used in action movies since then. So yeah. it's like, it's kind of interesting from that perspective. And then there's now the whole new hot take of the Wachowski sisters and how it's a whole trans experience mm -hmm. is the like, you have the movies. And so it's another interesting way to look. I don't at think that. you could even and separate just like, that yeah. stuff from the Matrix anymore. I think it's so, I don't think it's like overt, mm -hmm. but I think it's so consistent through them. Like... I, I'm not. I'm gonna. I, I. I don't know if queer coded is maybe the best word, but it's there. Yeah. And I think that's the thing too. Is like, I'm a longtime dungeon master. I've uh, not in the sex way, in the anti-sex way, where I played D and D. Um, oh my god, the anti-sex yeah, way. So I, Man, we're gonna have so many nerds <laughs> hating on us. If anybody ever actually listens to this fucking I've, podcast. I've got my credentials. Oh, Jesus Christ. I've been doing this for close to 15 years. I've been playing since second edition. Like, I've DM'd... Right, calm down, Critical I've DM'd a lot. And I, the thing that I think is really important about the Matrix movies, to Joseph's point, is that um, combat doesn't just have to be action. It can be, it can be storytelling. You can, you can actually fit... Mm you know, moments in in a fight that actually expand upon uh, the viewer or the player's knowledge of the world. And like the first time Neo does Kung Fu, it's a perfect exercise. And it's like pretty diegetic. Like they explain their way through it as it goes, where it's just like, no, you, you're, you st you're still thinking with the old rules, like try breaking them. But like even the bullet time moment is another great example. Um, and so even though it is like dense with action, it really does... Um, doesn't sorry doesn't waste any time there's no moments where it's just like this is lavish for the sake of it or at least not many moments like that mm. um yeah that's the it's got a variety of things it has some horrific moments it has oh yes the sci-fi moments are very sci-fi like i don't know it's it's just it's interesting from different things on a, some other level it's not even the first matrix is not that great of a movie but it's just Iconic. Oh yeah, I don't know. It's it's so memorable. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a title that can't be wrestled away from it. It combined so many different elements from basically all the sci-fi that had come up before it into one cohesive stylistic package, uh, and it delivered it in a way that was like acceptable to a mass market, but also to the people who like either loved that aesthetic or were soon to love it. It just like it was just happy pills the whole way through. It was so good. And I wasn't. Uh, I can't believe it's only four years after Hackers, too. It feels like it's from a right? totally different era. <laughs> well, and it's it's cool too because it is kind of like an interesting genre mashup, right? Because you have this like really amazing yeah. homage to like '60s, '70s kung fu movies mm -hmm. out of China, um, but also like this weird gender queer sci-fi moment that's very mm -hmm. a la Hackers. Mm -hmm. um, but is like taking it such an aggressive step forward. And then to like, to cast Keanu Reeves, <laughs> who I adore, but is objectively a bad actor yeah. in your lead role and still have the movie be that fucking good mm -hmm. is like a testament 
on its own. Like, I mean, it's iconic because Keanu Reeves is iconic and almost everything in the same way that people love Nicolas Cage movies, knowing Nicolas Cage is not actually a good actor. Keanu Reeves is a bad actor in most things, but he's so lovable. I think. And it works perfectly. Neo Trinity and Morpheus, I do think they're played. How do you call it? Like stereotype, not stereotypically, but like archetypally, but they're, they you they stick with you. Those characters, I don't think that any of those actors will ever be able to fully get away from those characters. No, right? Like, like they've they're just so they, powerful. It's so strange that they remind me so much of like almost stagnant characters in like video games. Mm. You know, like your early MMORPGs mm-hmm. where they're not NPCs, but they're not like really super narrative characters. They're like early quest and that's, that's Yeah, it's like it's like a dollhouse type situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably partly on purpose. Like, I think even... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like, I think even Keanu, like, his role throughout most of the movie is like... He is supposed to be played as like the straight man and not just in like the the, the queer-coded way. But like the... Like, um... Like, he, he's, he's, he is truly the naked guy going into the Matrix being like, like, what is this? Mm. I am not cool like you. I'm not knowledgeable like you. And I'm truly out of place. And I think he succeeds pretty well so long as he's in that mindset. Because um, that's kind of the role that most people cast him in, right? He's kind of clueless. And then as soon as he becomes Neo is when it starts. I don't know. That, that's for me where I start to feel detached. Um, and it could just be the, the age of the movie. Um, right. This is probably one of the better things I've seen, <laughs> I think. No, it's absolutely one of the better things he's been in. <laughs> but, it's a really good movie. He's yeah. still like he, he's still he's still wooden. He's still wooden. Yeah. 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 I, I, I can't think of someone who would be better in the role. I'll say, but yeah, I, it's it's definitely. No, because I think you need somebody really bland. <laughs> like I think you just need like a bland white dude. Mm-hmm. And like God love Keanu, he's kind of just like a void. Yeah. <laughs> in that movie. Yeah, he's a. Uh... I think because you're sort of supposed to be able to like put yourself in it. It's very like classic hero's journey. You're supposed to be able to like Mm -hmm. insert yourself in the narrative, and it works really well because he's yeah because he's just like kind of there, so he can be sort of an any man. Mm -hmm. And I think he succeeds there. Um, I think Mm -hmm. yeah, I I I think I think that is the best role for him. Um, Lawrence Fishburne though he um, he's acting his heart out in those movies. Oh yeah, mm. like Lawrence Fishburne is also just like a really good actor. Yeah, and he's like, mm. and you, you can tell like being on set for that movie, wearing latex and like silly glasses. Well, I guess at the time those were probably wicked glasses, but um, being on set. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is the nineties. Yeah, yeah, being on set and talking about these cyberpunk was cool. Yeah, yeah, being mm. on set and talking about like this weird computer shit with a straight face and also managing to sell it, like he he carries. Yeah. Um. Uh, so that's that's the bulk of what I watched. Yeah. So, so someone else, please pick up. I'll I'll come back later on with something. All right. Am I going or are you going? Yeah, you go ahead. All right. Uh, so I I watched I watched a new thing. I watched oh. uh, Midnight Mass. Right. Yeah. Yes. You're yes. Mike Flanagan's new venture, mm-hmm. a limited series. Yeah. I'm um, curious how this went. Where of course he cast his wife in one of the lead roles again. You gotta. But I do mm-hmm. love her. She's she's a good actor. It's just like That's a tax write off. A little weird. Yeah, we're we're getting to like Rob Zombie, Sherry Moon zombie levels at this point. Um <laughs> but at least she's a good actor. But no, it's it's um 
I feel like if you like this new style of atmospheric horror meets like the depths of of familial drama or like mm, like that is a trend now, yeah. Small community drama. Yeah, if you if you're into that and you like a slow burn, you're going to love it. Um but if you if you like Mike Flanagan but didn't like Bly Manor, you're not going to like this cuz it's it's very much in the same vein of of Bly Manor where there is horror elements to it and it truly does feel like a love letter to Stephen King. You can tell Mike Flanagan is like Yeah. An That's what avid reader like of King. Me. He has mm-hmm. that feel to him. It very much tracks. And it like he's gotten more persistent with that vibe, I would say, since he actually made a Stephen King movie, Dr. Sleep. Mm. Oh, yeah, that was him. But yeah, that was Mike Flanagan. Mm. Mike Flanagan is probably one of my favorite horror directors right now. I think he's like phenomenally creative and I think he's like really evocative. I feel like the emotion that he interweaves in his narrative is super effective for me. But I do get why people don't like it. And it's and it's really the same people that didn't love The Witch or didn't love Hereditary or whatever, because mm. it is super slow burn and it very much is intermingling these superhuman emotions with like elements of old world folklore. I think I think right. modern horror that strays from like slasher monster or gore porn typically like at least nowadays, it seems to be just extruded, like, out the side. People stop paying attention to anything so long as there's a human focus. Yes and no. I mean, I do I do think there there are people who are doing it well that have made it really popular. I think Ari Aster is a really great, like, example, um, and Robert Eggers are both doing things that are super esoteric and atmospheric, but are also still kind of, like, effective, evocative horrors. Um, and Mike Flanagan is another one who's who's doing similar things. And I find them much more creative and much more interesting than uh, run of the mill like Lee Winnell or James Wan, who are both technically very good at horror, but they're doing a lot more of the same. Right. Like you're oh, yeah. getting these homages to your poltergeists and your exorcists, which are fine and they're super fun. Mm. I love poltergeist. I love the exorcist. I love the omen. And I think it's really interesting to sort of do a modern twist on that but after a certain point it's becoming a retread for me yeah you can pay like your James Wan, James Wan is continuously doing the same thing over and over again yeah. with these fucking conjuring universe movies and his insidious movies it's it's it was new and interesting when he did the first insidious movie and now we're on like the 15th movie yeah. in this fucking universe it's kind of and i'm just over now. it it's kind of becomes it's yeah. kind of become actually the the flavor of horror for a while and now it, other people have now kind of edged him out of his own market if you know what i mean where it's like yeah i agree with that i think there's still interesting things that he can do in a movie but i don't find his movies interesting anymore That's overall fair. like i still want to see malignant it's supposed to be his love letter to Giallo films which i think is interesting it's different from what he's been doing because really he's just been doing like william peter blatty over and over again and i'm bored of it but I heard it's not very well done. I heard so the same. That. But Mike Flanagan, and look, clearly Mike Flanagan is doing love letter after love letter to Stephen King, but I think he's he's putting enough of himself in these movies and he's deviating enough in his movies and TV shows stylistically and putting enough of himself in them that I think it's it's interesting. It doesn't feel retready yet. Mm-hmm. Maybe it will, but when he's doing things like 
Oculus and and Ouija Origin of Evil. And then he's following them up with his Haunting of Hill House movies. Ouija Origin of Evil is a fantastic film. I was thinking the first Oculus. Ouija is the bad one. Oculus I didn't enjoy. I mm. liked Oculus. I, I never watched the second Ouija. I think I think Oculus just the second Ouija is good. I actually didn't even mind the first Ouija. I thought it was good as like a horror movie schlock. I thought it was like surprisingly fun. Am I missing the second one's much am better? Am I misremembering? Maybe Oculus is the one with uh, Karen Gillan, right? Yes. Yeah. I guess I don't know why that one didn't stick with me. I don't have a specific. I didn't. I, that's not. Yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't I don't see have that like one. a specific criticism it, for it. I just I don't remember so it sticking. Here's the thing: Oculus came out shortly-ish after everyone was really into those like American remakes of Japanese horror films, yeah. and mm. the trailer felt really similar to that because it's like ghost demony thing is coming out of a mirror. But I rewatched it recently and I felt similarly to you where I was like, this movie is terrible, just like all of these other Japanese like American reboots. It's nothing like that. It's not like a one missed call, the ring, the grudge. It's like none of those. It's you can see stylistically and in the narrative that it is a precursor to his haunting of Hill House movie. It is family drama and guilt and trauma just like interwoven into this sort of like American folkloric horror. Okay. You know what? Maybe I'll give it a it's second. It's genuinely try. interesting. I, I'm not going to, I think it's the weakest probably of most <laughs> of his stuff, but I think it's also like a really interesting sort of beginning to his style. But Midnight Mass, I thought was, was phenomenal. I thought it was really, really beautiful. And here's the thing with Midnight Mass that I think is going to frustrate a lot of people. It's both a slow burn and aggressively heavy on the dialogue. So it's 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 almost like monologuing at each mm. other. Right. But it is beautifully written. Mm. Like it is so perfectly written. And all of the character development and all of your understanding of this sort of world and the trauma and this like super tight knit community and what it means to live on this teeny tiny island that was fully supported by the fishing industry which is now dying is interwoven in these long sort of monolithic pieces of dialogue so it's it's amazing it's beautifully done it almost feels like a stage play um and the acting is amazing i like that idea of like i like it's like the idea of the dying of a small community or the dying of the old ways of how things because i i think that's I think I can't think of a quick take of like another horror movie that's really expressed that kind of loss or tragedy mm-hmm. where it's like like a cultural I can think passing. of movies but not a horror movie. Mhm. Yeah. I can think so of other that's, movies. That's a that cool do way it. to say it. It's not the same as Blind Manor or No. Hill House or anything. So I I that that intrigues me. Yeah, that's yeah. actually really curious. I, the idea I I'm I'm thinking of a few like older horror movies that have done something similar but but nothing modern huh i'm yeah yeah the manga spiral does it but it's like in the most absurd <laughs> way and it's like just apocalyptic nonsense oh god jinji ito yeah i mean all of yeah all of the um because it is very sort of like religion focused and it's really it's it's a specific brand of this sort of like coastal kind of like midwesterny or mid-easterny bible thumpy at born again christian kind of religion in this very very small town so when you don't partake in it you stick out like a sore thumb so you have a lot of interesting dynamics you have an atheist who's well they're probably descendants of the pilgrims or something there right yeah 
Yeah, I would imagine so. It's a really small coastal like fishing Puritans, island. There's only a hundred and like it's a population of 127 people. Wow. And they were fully supported by this by this fishing mm-hmm. industry that's dying off. So so much of it is about community and religion and like sort of like outsider syndrome, but also the opportunity for second chances and what that means to a community that's that's dying off because of their own choices and their own failings. So it's 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 really interesting. It's really beautiful and really sad. And that's why I kind of like edged it toward a blind manner, which I think is so much about like like guilt. Mm. And loss, and I feel like you have a really similar energy in Midnight Mass, um, even though it's on a community level rather than such a narrow field of focus of one house. The acting in this is amazing. Hamish Linklater is probably one of the best character actors we have right now. He He is phenomenally good. He was in um, he was in The Stand, which is not a great show, but he was amazing in it. Oh. He was in Tell Me Your Secrets with Lily Rabe. Okay. Okay. I, th- I think I've seen both. Yeah. Yeah. In The Stand, he was the um, scientist who takes uh, James Marsden's character to the underground bunker. Ah, I do recognize him. Yeah. 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 And then in Tell Me Your Secrets, he was like the creepy weirdo that comes after Lily Rabe. <laughs> the guy who gets hired as like a private detective and it turns out he's like kind of a pervert. Yeah. Anyone who does that is a creep. He's actually married to Lily Rabe in real life. Oh, so then it's just like a kind of whole thing. weird. It's almost cute. (laughs) No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the show. No, no. (laughs) Um, But he's he's incredible in it. Um, Zach Guilford, who was in Good Girls, is amazing in it. Kate Siegel is great as always. Henry Thomas shows up in it again because he's a Mike Flanagan favorite. And he's I mean, Henry Thomas is incredible all the way back to when he was a small child in E.T., to now, as a man in his mid forties. Oh my god! Hmm. To be in the business. Who is in every long. Mike Flanagan movie? Oh my god! I know. Jeez. And he's been in like everything Mike Flanagan has done, except for Oculus. Like literally almost everything I can think of that Mike Flanagan has done, Henry Thomas was in. Um, I was gonna say uh, I don't have much to say about Hill House uh, or, or Midnight Mass, which I actually re- I'm realizing the the short synopsis you gave me before the podcast started uh, uh, already sold me, and this is just like this is probably gonna creep to the very top of my list, but. Um, yes, watch it. Watch <laughs> all the things I recommend. Uh, but but uh, uh, I think it was Bly Manor. Greg Sestero's in it of uh, of the room. Jesus. Yeah, I'm, 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 I, I saw I saw your faces both change, and I, I wanted to pause to let that sink in. But yeah, he's he's in it, and luckily he doesn't have to do. I think he I think that's the one he's in, um, or maybe it was uh, Hill House. Either way, he he's in one of the two, and luckily they didn't give him many. <laughs> like full frontal <laughs> shots where he does the acting there's like a like a kind of like a panning shot where you get his face and you're and i was like holy fuck that's the guy <laughs> he's the guy who's friends with uh with the crazy man uh tommy wiseau um and there's a couple like there's a couple moments where he he, he delivers dialogue but very intelligently the director does not have him anywhere in the scene when he speaks um <laughs> there um, there are actually a couple surprise actors in Midnight Mass that threw me off too. Mm. I mean, it, like you've got um, Raul Coley who was in Bly Manor, who's phenomenal. He was also from um, I Zombie, great in that. Just a gorgeous man yeah. too, just so attractive. Um, just hot. <laughs> but 
he, he is a hot dude. Uh, but the the mayor in and this fucked me up. But the mayor in this town in Midnight Mass is played by Michael Trucco, whose name you might not recognize. He's in old age makeup in this show. So I was sitting there and I'm like, he looks so familiar. And then I literally screamed at my television and at my oh mother my <coughs> that he was the man who was in Battlestar Galactica and is just stunningly gorgeous. Wait. Hold which on. Let Apollo? me. Is it Apollo? Oh my yeah, God. No, it's, a, Apollo. it's um. Or, it's wait, like then who the is bas- it? He, play, he plays the, the game, the sports game that they play, that and that's not, where they find him. Is that him. not Apollo? Yes. Not Apollo. No, it's the other, it's the, it's the competitive, the guy who is like the competing love interest. Yeah, he, he's, he's the son of like General Adama. Midway after season Lee two. Adama. What's his, what's his fucking handle? Uh, no, not Adama. It's not? It's no, but it's not, no, no. it's not Adama's son. It's a, it's a non-galactic, he's, he's a part of a totally different group. Oh. Yeah, they, they find him later. He comes in and like yeah. the, like the second or third season. Okay, I'm I'm overdue for. Uh, a he's in the resistance group on on Earth. Hold on, I, Samuel Anders. Spoilers, but I'm I'm overdue for Samuel a Samuel so, Anders. So. But he looks he. It's funny because he looks exactly like Leah Dama, main character guy. <laughs> Leah Dama. He does not look like he does not well, look fr- like from Dama. the very small thumbnail mm. that you put up on the camera. Mm. <laughs> I, I've always, I, I, I immediately like. thought that was Lee, but. Um, Damn, I need. Yeah, I got to rewatch Battlestar. I still haven't finished Battlestar Galactica, but when uh, I do, that is one that I want to talk about it. on the podcast. So good. I, know. I, it, I finished season two, and season two has a very like things are changing so much that you might as well like pretend the show's over. Oh um, no, ending. I'm not letting you have it that gets one. So uh-uh. good, it gets so yeah, good. Yeah, every people say that it gets much worse after season I, two. I disagree. People, uh, you know what? Everyone shits on that show. Well, not everyone. Um. Uh, a lot of people show on that show because only because the ending. I feel um, mm. uh, the ending is bad. The ending is horseshit. Though, but like if you snip out that last, fairness. if you snip out like that, even just parts of that last episode, that I I would argue Battlestar Galactica I, seasons one through at least five are like as good as TV got. I think you got to snip out like the last three episodes. I'll give it to you, but only because it's been at least five years since I've done a rewatch. But because that whole uh, last episode is just the epilogue. Oh, that's true. That whole last episode is them closing. Like there, nothing happened. There's no narrative. It's just just like bookending everybody's stories. Um, It's really bad. It's a really bad episode. But even despite the shit ending, I I honestly think, and this is definitely probably the hot take. I'm gonna get death threats for this, but um, I think Battlestar is, um, for, for many of its moments, was as good as TV could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, me. I think that's not a hot take. I think that's a very popular take. Well, I yeah. feel like I feel like uh, it often gets overshadowed by like by like the other big sci-fi's, right? Like like everyone's going to be like, "Well, it's no Star Trek," and it's like, "Of course, it's no fucking sci-fis. Star Trek." And people will be like, "Well, well Babylon yeah, Five different. did the human issue better," and it's like, it's like no, no what no one's arguing Babylon Five heard is it. better. Uh, not better, that's... but like it does certain elements. Either way, yeah. I like no. I I think Battlestar is uh, yeah. I'll Although the that. Expanse is also very good. The Expanse's big problem, I think, is just that it came out like right after Game of Thrones. So at, the comparisons it are overshadowed. there, and they're just like, yeah, it just feels like slightly worse Game of Thrones. And you're like, yeah, but it's still I good. I that that's the bar, is Game of Thrones. <laughs> and and if, you, if you remove the last two seasons, it was television for like five years. Yeah, yeah. Hot take. I like Westworld. Mm. Way more um, yeah. than I probably should. 
I I <laughs> so it gets I still need to watch past. I I gave up the I gave up during the second season of Watch. I am a sci-fi lover and I gave up during these I've shows, which is like so more sad. more sci-fi than Joseph has, and Joseph is arguably a based way some, bigger some lists. fan. I, I, some think, lists. I think season one of Westworld. All you do is Ooh. base on lists. That's, That's your true. whole thing, I, I, is I, lists. He's, he's very organized. You can't fault him for that. I, I, I think season one of Westworld is immaculate. I don't think there's anything you can do to fix mm. it. It is. Uh, it's uh, really phenomenal. I wouldn't give it that, yeah. I, it's good. I, I just mean like I think it's so clear that they like had a goal in mind right from the get go, and by the end of it they have completed that. And I just mean like I don't think it's perfect TV, but I think I think season one of that show encapsulates exactly what they wanted to get out of it. And then I could yes. not finish. I no, I did finish season two. It becomes but such I did a different vibe right away. Um, season two yeah, pushed me I, off. So I I wa- I started season two and grew to despise it yes um so i turned it off and then i rewatched season one and because i waited a year for season two after loving season one so much so i finally went back and i rewatched season one and then watched season two immediately after it did not do well having that year off in between that's what fucked up the two seat because it, it's immediately after season one ends season two begins and mm. that year break, I think, really stagnated things. Yeah. Um, but They're if you too watch much it, the same season. You're saying like you, they, they flow. No, they flow into each other so perfectly that it's yeah. like there there wasn't a year off in world. It picks up immediately yeah. where it left off. So unless you do a rewatch of season one right before season two started, which most people don't do, mm-hmm. you're losing the nuance in those first couple of episodes that are like just basically a re-ramp yeah Yeah, it's it's ramping back up again right so it's starting off slow and going into a climax the way season one did and it it damages the effect unless you watch it all together like it's it's truly meant to be a cohesive narrative piece I, i did do season one into season two immediately during the pandemic and i I don't fully agree. All right, well, just fuck but, you then. But but what what I will uh. say is I think I think where the show lost me, um, as someone who's not like a big sci-fi watcher, I guess, is like season one got by. I, I love how you say that. Literally every movie you've mentioned in the podcast okay, so fair. far is a sci-fi. Um, <laughs> okay, you know what? I'll, I'll give you that. Okay, I'm not going to say I'm like super well versed in it though. I just I, um I have strong feelings about it. Uh, so I I feel like. Um, where it dropped, where it, where it left me behind is um, season one. It inter- introduced very few sci-fi uh, elements to just get the story of, oh, ahead, right? Fair. And season two, I felt at first, I felt like it wasn't respecting me as a viewer because immediately it's like here's twelve new concepts and new named characters who exist only within those concepts. Mm. And I, I, I personally felt like I started to just kind of become distanced from what it wanted me to care about that being said season two had a lot of really crushing moments uh the Mm -hmm. the 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 actual like closure of um the father and son i always forget their their names but the the dude who like who owns westworld and his kid Mm -hmm. their arcs when they like the way they closed up was heart-wrenching it was brutal but all the moments of like sci-fi fuckery um in between is where i kind of fell off because i started to feel like the train kept going and i was still trying to assemble because they brought in the whole like samurai world the samurai world i agree that that was kind of a bad call Yeah, because the samurai world retreaded season one because it was it mirrored it but but not only that but also like this weird proto afterlife and like there's like there's like the hive Mm, where like 
Westworld, where all mm-hmm. the mines are kept, but there's also a greater mind where the afterlife and I guess it was like the backup. Maybe you'd like season three better because it almost gets a little, I want to say not as good, not even half as good, <laughs> but Blade Runner-y. I'm willing to hop in if with when See, Blade Runner said. Here, here's the thing, though. My thing is like, so a lot, the actual sci-fi element of Westworld for me is the like identity stuff about like who's, who, who's a replicant, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I just feel like they go way too over the top with it where it's like, which Blade Runner does too. And I almost, I actually think it's weirdly, it's the thing most talked about in Blade Runner, but is actually maybe the weakest is the like questions of like how many people slash who is an actual replicant. Hard agree on that. Yeah. Where and, and Westworld ends up like doubling down on this, yeah. where it's like every character is like, Am I real? It, it doesn't matter. Is my code just the real memories? Or how many wipes does it count before things? And every single character is like going through some kind of memory fuckery arc. And it's like, I just got so confused mm-hmm. by the middle of season two. I'm like, I don't Lots know where a character's arc is supposed to be anymore. Mm, um, yeah. Some of them I thought was, I think. The saloon woman, I forget her name, but her arc was clearly the strongest and actually like flowed throughout both seasons very, very well and made sense. And she basically, to me, basically became the main protagonist. Oh, uh, in the second season, she she pretty much is. Yeah. In the second season, Maeve is is pretty much the main character. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back to Evan Rachel Wood's character in um, in season three. Thank you. Yeah, I think... uh... I guess that's also somewhat where I, where I got dropped off because I like the nuance of the of the identity kind of conundrum. I feel like got mixed up once they hit Samurai World because suddenly everyone had to become a Terminator unit to survive it. And mm-hmm. then once they came out, um, like Dolores at this point is full on villain, and the people who you're following, like Maeve, is having to do a m- many uh, morally objectionable things to survive. And it's and it does kind of put those into contrast. But I but I still think the the, the relishing in the, the violence of it is where I started to... Yeah, like, like I don't think it's inherently a, a bad season. I don't want to talk shit, but I think I did just... There's a couple things that tipped me off the the wagon. Yeah, I get that. Um, I do think there are some cool things that happen in season two that lead you into season three really mm-hmm. nicely, but season three... It's, <clears throat> it's funny, season one is all pure Westworld. Westworld is, like, it's based on a movie that came out in the 60s that was written... Mm-hmm. 60s or 70s that was written by Michael Crichton. Um, the Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park guy, yeah. yeah, the Jurassic Park guy, the Andromeda Strain guy, mm-hmm. all that shit. Um, he wrote Westworld, and season one perfectly encapsulates exactly what the movie Westworld was about. Um, and season two, you're right, it does have like Terminatory vibes. I mean, even with Maeve and like her pseudo like daughter mm-hmm. and like all that kind of shit, yeah. it's got it's got big Terminator vibes. Whereas season three, you're getting a lot more Blade Runner influence and you're out in the futuristic world outside of this like Westworld theme park you're in the real world mm-hmm. that invented Westworld um with these like pseudo replicants um and you're back with Dolores's character trying to put a stop to like enforced robot slavery yeah, basically some form of like robot exploitation yeah and it's and it's really interesting because you're interacting with real humans and Dolores and other of these like robots and you're doing the sort of mystery who's who thing again, but it's so much more about revolution, whether or not she's the villain, Mm. what the true goal of the company that created Westworld is with this like Mm. 
semi like super realistic um autonomous beings who are who are also it, like it, downloading people's identities yeah, yeah. It, it becomes it becomes a lot more of like a grand conspiracy and like okay. hyper futuristic kind of semi dystopia like a blade runner i'll uh, i'll tentatively mm-hmm. get it's not nearly it. as good I, as blade i do want to i do want to eventually get through it yeah. yeah it's not i don't know what it's on anymore I have to look up. What on Crave. On yeah, it should something. be on Crave. It's a HBO show. Mm. Um, so it's yeah, a massive I'll, I'll... tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. What you been watching? <sighs> I do. Okay, I do have a lot, but I really just want to focus on interesting stuff. And I'm just going to start dropping more. Since we have three of us Blast now, them I'm going to start dropping more stuff. That's just like not interesting to talk mm-hmm. about. Because I like when we get to tangent and just talk about whatever we feel like, too. So there's two that I really that really affected me. So those are the ones I'm going to talk about. It's season three of Sex Education with Maeve. Asa Butterfield. Who, yeah, Maeve is, yeah, yeah. well, that not that that was not Ave, uh, Maeve, but the other so, main character. wait, Sandy Newton's in it? Like, Maeve? No, it's oh, not the Maeve actors. is the name I, of the character. I, I named oh, okay. the character. I thought you meant, so I I thought you meant Maeve from Westworld, because no. we just said no. Maeve like eight times. <laughs> I was like, Sandy Newton's in this because show? Because you said, no, it's because you said Maeve, the name Maeve, it's just funny. But anyways, season th- I, I, I've liked Sex Education since season one, but by season three, I'm just surprised a show is this type of show is able to maintain such a relevant, strong teenage storyline that feels like not corny, not just like, oh, you know, here's all the classic teenage stories and, you know, here's your Degrassi education. It really feels like... Don't you be shitting on Degrassi. That's like the only thing Canada has. Um, But it just really feels like it's not ironic. It's not... things. It's just well done. Like, let's have teenage storylines and talk about sex a lot. And just have beautifully crafted, interesting, diverse stories each season. And it's like, there's overarching stories each season. Like, in the sense of like, um, you know, like a plot arc. And this one I felt was the most like invasive where a new headmaster comes in and like spices things up. But to me, it's all about the character arcs. Each character is like learning so much. And it's so rare to actually get a show where you feel like each season you can actually like write down the lessons and how each character. Changed. That's actually really cool. Like it feels so good. That, 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 well that show keeps popping up in my recommended and I keep passing on it because I was like. I, I was afraid. Um, part of my fear is it's so well, part good. Of my fear is just like it's just gonna like be a horny show without any thought, right? Um, it's yeah, not at all. Yeah, and, and like the fact that the fact that there's like like a contiguous thread for multiple people across multiple seasons, and they're all mm-hmm. like like fairly as you, I guess I'm getting the vibe that they're consistently good. That's that's a great mm-hmm. recommendation for me. I tried. I genuinely tried to get into sex education and it's not that it was bad. It wasn't at all. It's not so much my vibe, but I've watched tons of things all the way through that aren't totally my vibe and I've enjoyed them. I just cannot fucking stand Asa Butterfield's face. Right. Like I just yeah. hate he his does... fucking milk toast face. I got to look this guy. I don't want to say, but yeah, he does I gotta look, look weird. This guy up. I'm going to spend just a second. It's sec. not that he's okay. He does look weird. That makes it sound like I'm bashing on this poor kid's looks. It's not, but that. it's also so focused on his inability to masturbate in the first few episodes, which is like such a weird storyline. And so yeah. he's just, he's a disturbing kind of character from the beginning. But the main actress, like the main selling, is Gillian Anderson, who is phenomenal. Fucking phenomenal. She's love never Jillian not Anderson. phenomenal. 
Yeah, uh, she's yeah. amazing. She's also stunning. Never, never not been. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, she she has gotten consistently better looking while David Duchovny has gotten. Worse <laughs> we and worse were talking looking. about his coke bloat. Yeah, poor David Duchovny and his coke bloat. Oh. Who here's seen Californication? Speaking of tangents. Oh, yeah. David Duchovny. This is so bad. It's so bad, but I loved Californication. And it's one of these shows <laughs> that I now look back on with so much yeah, regret. Yeah, it, it was too scummy, and I kept watching it. Californication. I realized there's no irony to it. It is, literally no, was just no, like, this is cool. It's, it's lavish for no, the sake of it. No, it's not that it was this is cool. It's not that this is cool. It's that it is a semi-autobiographical story right. about David yeah. Duchovny's own cocaine and sex addiction and yeah. how he slept with jailbait borderline of age girls yeah constantly it's so bad jesus yeah i he wrote the show i had no idea i thought it was yeah i thought it was a look you know i thought it was like one of these like wolf of mall street or fight clubs where it's really look back at that to be like not not just ironic Jordan but Belfort kind of like wrote very the book critical. about wolf of wall street that was also autobiographical oh. yeah but the i don't know the movie i don't know i thought well I, I actually don't even like the movie but i felt like it was Let's okay, American Psycho. Like it's trying to say it's bad to be this mm-hmm. way, but maybe not. I'm not. But anyways, it's like you can view it that way. No, I or, think that's American true. Of American that's Psycho. Yeah. And American Beauty so, is a little skirt in the line, but I feel like that's true with American Psycho. Yeah, and so it's like I watched Californication with that, and I was young at the time, and you know the sex was like appealing to the young brain. Um, and I was like, oh, depression and sex and and emptiness, but it's like it really is just like a. A look at that in a, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, that that kind of tragic man syndrome way where it's like, of course, this is what you would do, yeah. but it does end up being a bit emptier than you'd think. But like, you got to be an awesome man. Yeah, it's you just, know? You yeah, it's, it's very weird, Breaking Bad too. It's weird alpha male, like narcissist, but also having a midlife crisis yeah. and yet justifying it because I'm a cool creative it's type. So, it's and that's exa- interesting like, so it's hard just, this episode. It just encapsulates David Duchovny so well, it's and it bums me out because I in a sad it, yeah, way, exactly. in a really and it's sad like way. the fact that he is the creator of this show and like wrote several episodes of this show based on his own life, making it a self insert, an author self insert, and then cast himself in the lead fucking role. Like you could not get more self-important or narcissistic or masturbatory than that fucking show. Yeah, and, and it's such a take. bummer because I like had the biggest crush on David Duchovny in the 90s. See, I would mid coke addiction. David Duchovny really did it for me when I was like 12. He, he can he can lose the spotlight for Jillian Anderson. Forever. Uh, she, he was. It's funny. Stunner. He was actually in. Um, not even like really as an actor. He kind of just played himself in it. But I watched it so many episodes ago, right when it came out on Netflix called The Chair, which is about like academia, about um, Sandra Oh. She is an English professor and she is God, I love going to be chair, uh, going to be chair of the English department. And, um, you know, she's the, she's the first Asian-American uh, woman to be the chair and actually the first woman of color at all to be a chair at this fake Harvey uh, Ivy League university. And... I liked the show, but it's just one of those, it just ends up in the valley of mediocrity where it's like, you did what you set out to do. And if you're interested in watching a show about where academia is at right now, it's a pretty good indication. But where it fails is this fight between the Gen Zers or the new people coming in who are all like, academia is trash, conservative whiteness, and does not know how to talk to the new, you know, revolutionary left and all this stuff versus 
what the show actually ends up defending a lot, which is that like, no, academics are like guardians of <laughs> the canon and are like still need to, they still have their place and it needs to be a reconciliation that they need to learn their lessons of the new generation and the new generation has to learn their lessons from academia. We don't need to learn lessons, but they need to come Was here to learn lessons. Was it written by a white man? I, I, I don't know. I, I do still think it's energy. speaking. Of. I do still think it's like a, it, it feels good as a show and like there's a love story in it and it's cute and all this stuff. But yeah, it, it, in the end, I just can't recommend it. Wait, the love story is not between David Duchovny and Sandra no, Oh. It's, oh, thank it's, God. It's, thank uh, Sandra Oh, it's, it's, it's a fight actually about funding the department. And they're like the department people. They're like, OK, we're going to cut your funding. But um, one thing that we could get recruitment up is if we get uh, an author to come in as a as a guest lecturer to bring more recruitment, right? So they pick David Duchovny because he's apparently a published author, and it's actually what? just him. Like it's Wait, like he's actually just himself. He just and it is as David, David Duchovny. Jesus Christ! And weirdly, I don't know if this is true either, but yeah. apparently, at least the character in the show did a PhD that he just didn't finish, and so he I wants to like finish true. his PhD. Yeah, he, in I the show, he might actually has he, has he yeah. unlearned how to act, and now he's just like, "Oh, just hire me. I'll just be the most interesting man." I, I think, think he lost a lot of his money in his divorce after his sex addiction came out. Oh yeah, this all happens. It turned out he was having like eighty-seven affairs and doing yeah. blow on hookers and shit. I think he just like lost a ton of his money, and that's why he does whatever the fuck he can get. He's also like mad fucked up looking now. Unfortunately, yeah, we, we saw a picture. He's in that um, <laughs> he's in that shitty remake of The Craft. Oh god! Not, not even a remake. It's it's a sequel. It's a legitimate sequel from like twenty years later because the craft came out in like ninety seven or something. Stop doing that stuff. It's so bad. It's it's like objectively terrible. And he's he's in it as like this the stepdad who like might be a bad guy but might also just be like a weird dude. And he ends up coming off like vaguely pervy <laughs> because it's David Duchovny. Yeah. That's um, surrounded just him. by a lot of young women. Probably just him coming through. Yeah, uh, I kind of think so. I, I feel like because like a woman will not touch his weird coke bloated <laughs> body anymore. Uh, so <laughs> he uh, just I, comes off like really pervy when he's around females. So I looked up this dude you guys were talking about. Oh, Asa Butterfield. Yeah. Um. Oh, I can't get Fucking it to work. Hate his face. You know what? Like he just if you, if you if you if you mixed a bunch of of genes from the island into like a into a mixer and just shook it, and what you pour out is deep. What island? Uh, England. Englandia, right. uh, oh. and you pour it out into a glass. That's the stock yeah. British look. He, I think he just looks like a like you pull him off like a. You have to see him from a, di- a few different angles to really get the full. Oh yeah, none of them are none, of, looks, none of them are good angles, but he just looks like he looks stock. like an alien. Yeah. He also looks like he would age. This is so mean. He looks like he would age like really poorly because he's oh looked God. like fifteen for about ten years. It's kind of like Thomas, uh, like whatever Thomas Brody, whatever who I adore, but if he was in Queen's Gambit. He was like the cowboy chess player in Queen's I Gambit. I didn't think he, oh, I thought he aged really well. Oh, He still okay. looks 12. Yeah, He's but he just like good. a stretched out version of the 12-year-old boy from Love Actually. It's yeah. fucking nuts. Okay. And I, I love him. I think he's adorable. I thought he was adorable in Queen's Gambit, but like he's either going to look amazing in like 15 years or he is going to look like a fucking disaster, and there is no in between. Apparently, this uh, Asa Butterfield was supposed to play Spider-Man at some point. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. That was um that was when um Andrew Garfield was cast in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. He was rumored back then. And uh you, yeah. this is totally unrelated. But do you remember the eyebrows kid who was in yeah, Will Angry Miller's Will Poulter? Yeah. He was supposed to be Pennywise in the It movies. He does yeah, he does look like a ghoul. Skarsgård. He does look yeah, like a ghoul. I know you wouldn't you wouldn't even have to put makeup on no. him. No. Just make him do uh, the crazy uh, Botox the, eyebrows and that's all you need. Put the red nose on him yeah. and be good. <laughs> I know. But yeah, I so I want to wrap up. But yes, I do oh, think yeah. sex education I do think sex education is good. I do think it's a teenage show. I don't think it's like like it's not going to be revelatory to any of us, I don't think for people our age. Yeah, we're all still um, learning. But I just think I just respect it so much for being like such a good teenage show and um not Asa Butterfield's uh <laughs> character. I think he's pretty boring throughout it. But Nudie Gatwa, his best friend Eric is great and is like a black gay man who's trying to embrace well gay boy at the time trying to embrace his identity and he goes through a lot of the stereotypical gay storylines but because of like being a gay black man in britain and whatnot I, they feel new they feel fresh mm. um and he really embraces his nigerian identity his history like how his family dynamics worth work with being gay in a really brilliant way interesting and then my favorite character is Maeve the his sort of love interest and the girl he like Asa Butterfield rather is in love with and they start this sex ed, ed sex ed clinic at the school and that's the premise of the show she's uh, extremely smart well read um but lives in you know in lower a lower class family and her mother is uh a drug addict and she lives in a trailer park and it's just like she's just half she has to use all of her energy to keep her life together and it's just so interesting it's just so i don't know it's so well mm-hmm. done and so interesting and she meets a lot of other interesting characters in her own sort of area and and all their problems too but it's not like there's so the cat the cast is actually so wide and they touch on so many different issues in a way that i just think it's still teenage in the end like it's not brilliantly nuanced but it sounds like but more it just than, feels yeah. like the best version of that that's out yeah right it now. sounds like more than just a coming of age story which is which is great because we don't need more <laughs> mm-hmm. also shout out to the girl who is up absolutely obsessed with writing alien porn oh, and all of her storylines yeah. about like trying to fall in love with people and people are like can we not role play getting abducted by aliens every night and she's like you don't love me anymore <laughs> this gives me like big tina belcher energy yeah Mm-hmm. That's that's good energy. It's like zombie fan fiction. That's good energy. You got to be weird. Yeah. Uh, don't yuck yums and all that. <laughs> Although maybe don't make like maybe don't make every partner role play. Yeah. Well, alien. At the table. Sex romps every time. Let's at the table rolling dice. Let's at the table. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I did watch another thing. This is this is a, a a bit of a deep cut. I don't expect a lot of people to to mm. know much about this, and I'm not. People want those deep. This cuts. is a deep cut. So this this is a show, Especially and it's a Canadian family. show. So no no one's ever heard of it, and it's a good show. So definitely, and it's a good Canadian show. So no one's ever heard of it, um, and it's all filmed in Toronto, and it's called Nirvana the Band the Show. Um, Nir- never. Heard yeah. Of it. No. So. So this is this is a real this is a really deep cut and this is a hard recommend to anyone who's like fine with humor that's kind of dumb if you also want to watch something that's like kind of brilliant. Mm. So it started as a web series in like 2000, I'm going to say 7, but someone's going to correct me on that. 
So uh, it started as a web series in 2007. It's just two dudes who at this time were like probably like uh, mid-20s living in Toronto in real life in an apartment together. They're best friends. Um, and so in the show, which they filmed, they produced themselves, they like wrote themselves. Uh, one, well, the, the main guy wrote it uh, himself. I can't remember his name at the moment. I think it's Matt Johnson. Yeah, Matt Johnson. And it's like it's, it's they're in a band and it's just the two of them. Matt, who doesn't necessarily seem to have a discernible musical skill, and his buddy Jay, who does, who plays the piano immaculately. He's actually, Jay is the guy who did the soundtrack for Kid Detective. So fun fact, you got, you've actually, nice. you actually have a connection to this, to, to this guy. So the, the whole premise is that they want to get a show at the Rivoli, which at the time was a real place in Toronto. I don't know if it's still a place. And so that's the only premise of the show. And every episode is them trying to get a show at the Rivoli. And it's Matt is cracked out of his mind, not on drugs. He's just like, he's just like whack, trying to like make these absolutely ridiculous plans to get into the Rivoli, whether it's stealing the booking book, whether it's like kidnapping someone, like they need to get a show, but they don't, but he he's not clever enough to just do the regular means of like make a tape, hand it in. Maybe we can book a show. Uh, and the show, and it just gets, goes off the rails. That was the web series in like the early thousands. They recently, they, they, a couple years ago got funding from the Canadian government. And I guess they also got picked up by Viceland. Uh, so um, okay. the show had some traction, but basically it retreads the same beats as the web show that no one ever saw. Um, except now they're adults and they're just doing it again. Mm. And um, they are at the forefront right now, them as, them as human beings, uh, as actors and as showmakers of, copyright law because they're finding new ways to bend copyright law to let them do things with their show that most people are too afraid to do so like the first episode uh jay is playing the intro the the the, the song from jurassic park when like um uh the, like da, 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 yeah he's playing that and they're reenacting i'm not it. gonna go further than that just in case oh, we yeah. get <laughs> um and there's multiple other points throughout the show where they manage to absolutely break copyright laws in ways we were like that's illegal and they totally get away with it um and they're doing it in cool ways to like each episode is basically an homage to great movies or shows of our times and wow. it's them kind of reenacting them also trying to get it a booking at the rivoli it is the humor in it is so stupid much of it is like bordering on like painfully offensive but Every episode is dense with references, whether it's musically, whether it's the cinematography, whether it's um, subtle, subtle jokes that aren't played as jokes um, to like it's a the whole thing is a love letter to cinema. Um, and Matt Johnson, the guy who's filming it and also starring in it with his buddy Jay, he is a film student at U of T who's like currently like still in school while filming this. So it's like it is odd and I think it needs to be watched. It is super, uh, super ob obtuse. That's really <laughs> sorry for the long yeah. rundown, but I don't know where it's it, it really is. No. Uh, they've got two seasons out. I think they're struggling to get a third one put together, but it's still worth a watch. Mm. So good. Um, I don't know if there's any major platforms you can watch it, though. That is the problem. So I'm not going to direct people to the high seas, but <laughs> if you find a way to watch it, please do. Uh, I think actually much of it is actually free to watch on whatever Canadian. What's the major Canadian broadcaster? Is it CBC? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think actually much yeah. of it is actually on their website that you can watch for free, but not not all of it. Gem. Yeah, I'll, CBC Gem is the app. Uh, if if there's free stuff on there, this show must be there. There is. It's pretty much all free on 
CBC Channel. Yeah, and and I realize this is a really odd recommendation because it's not quite a f- comedy show. It's not quite a serious show, but it's it's really really. Um, it stands up to rewatches too. All the episodes are about twenty minutes, uh, and they're dense with content. Huge recommend. Very cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. Mine's less cool. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> I watched the new uh, Amazon Prime original film, The Voyeurs. Oh, mm. I don't know. With about um, this. Sydney Sweeney, who was in uh, White Lotus, a new HBO show that was mediocre at the best of times. <laughs> mediocre whiteness <laughs> on a television screen. Oh, that was the really horny uh, one, wasn't it? White Lotus? Yeah. Eh, not really. Okay. Maybe it's Not this really. one that I'm thinking of. The Voyeur. Oh, yeah. Voyeurs is the horny one. Um, <laughs> the Voyeurs is an erotic thriller. <laughs> oh, so it's Eyes Wide with, Shut? Uh, there you go. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of. Think think more like Paul Verhoeven or Brian De Palma. Not. Not Stanley Kubrick. It's I'm not a, a Kubrick. scrunchy face to that. We're not going in that direction. Yeah. Um, we're going. We're going more like. I'm not going to say Hollow Man, but like Femme Fatale, because Hollow Man's gross. Um, yeah, but like Hollow Femme Fatale, mm-hmm. uh, Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, those kinds. These of movies. are good. Good That's, movies are com- that 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 it it's tr- trying to follow. I'm imagining it probably doesn't. I mean, doesn't. Have you have you have you rewatched Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct? I haven't. We said they were good when they came. They're not good. Oh. They're not. They're bad. Well, so many of them have Michael Douglas, which is just fucking nuts. He's never been hot because nobody <laughs> nobody is murdering another woman for Michael Douglas. No. I just want to point that out. That's never happening. Uh-uh. <laughs> like putting face. At least Femme Fatale had Antonio Banderas. He's hot. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he, he was gorgeous when that movie came out. And Rebecca Remain, forget about it. Anyways, this movie's terrible. <laughs> it's, my, it's my through line. It's the worst version of a De Palma film. But it's basically, you know, two young, young naive lovers move to the city to a fancy Brooklyn apartment uh, that they talk about like it's a shithole and this place must be 2,000 mm. square feet and looks like a fucking mm-hmm. artist studio. Oh, it's course. immaculate. Oh, it's a shithole. Uh, with giant, like, factory windows, floor-to-ceiling fucking factory windows and exposed brick walls. Place that is clearly $5,000 a month to rent. And they're, like, 22. <laughs> uh, and across the way, in the much fancier, super high-end condos, are this couple who keep their blinds open all the time. And they start, you know, just casually watching them. They look over and see what they're doing. Turns out they have a ton of sex. So it becomes an erotic thing. Good for them. And they decide to buy binoculars and spy on their neighbors, which is just like a fucking wild thing to do. Oh, that's a leap. Hey, those yeah, people are sta- it starts off with like, it starts off with the boyfriend being like, ooh, they're banging. Yeah, let's get a look at that. And then the girlfriend's just like, absolutely, this is terrible. It's so invasive. What are you doing? Stop looking at them. And then like two scenes later, she bought a pair of fucking binoculars from a pawn shop. It's a popular premise, though. And they're banging while watching these people. Yeah. Obviously, based on rear window, but like after rear window, there's Disturbia. There's Woman in the Window, which we just watched. Yeah. Which was also terrible. Um, Mm. It's not even the premise of like watching your neighbors, because I think. People do that. That's why we have curtains. So your neighbors don't watch you. Mm. It's more just like the immediate interchange 
of like he wants to watch them because it's kind of like taboo and naughty and she's like no we shouldn't do it it's awful that's a terrible thing to mm-hmm. do it's super invasive and then two scenes later she's got binoculars and wants to bang her boyfriend while watching the neighbors have sex and he's like no I don't want to do this it's creepy and weird how into it you are and it's like this is this is within the span of probably 25 minutes of the film mm-hmm. I'm like that's a really big leap first of all and a weird super fast flip so there's that. That was weird. But anyway, it devolves into a sexy thriller from there. It turns out the boyfriend is cheating on his like live-in girlfriend. Um, he's a photographer and he's like banging all his models and it's like semi-coercive and super creepy. And then, you know, terrible things ensue and there's domestic violence and then she inserts herself into their lives and it kind of devolves from there. Um, so it's like kind of just pulling all of the worst pieces of of movies like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct and Femme Fatale and shoving them into like one movie with barely like passably attractive people in it. The premise is so simple. The fact that it comes out bloated is just like just a yeah. real that's that's like a that's like a strike on the director's uh, uh like like you know resume. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, so I don't have anything I, I, I really like I don't think there's anything interesting to say about mm-hmm. it I think if you like erotic thrillers it might be like passably okay to you but ultimately like you're better off watching almost anything by Verhoeven <laughs> or De Palma other than Hollow Man mm-hmm. um, and if Hollow Man is your your erotic thriller of choice you have bigger problems <laughs> yeah. that you need to Stop unpack with movies. your therapist start talking therapist yeah Nobody needs a 90-minute, like, love letter to Kevin Bacon date-raping women while he's invisible. Oh, yeah, we're good. So, actually, my pick and the one that I've... movie that's most affected me recently is I talk about Wong Kar Wai way too much on this fucking <laughs> podcast, but I ended up watching... That he's rolling her eyes. <laughs> the big, the big, big yeah. one, which is In the Mood for Love. Okay. Which is not as... So, it's one of the things that I knew going in. It's not as experimental as his works and so it feels a little less like our vibe for the podcast so his other works have these like weird camera techniques and they're sloppier faster like and I always love the story that he two of them this two most famous like Chunking Express and Fallen Angels were made at the nighttime with the same actors as his big unbelievably overcosted budget movie called uh, Ashes of Time oh he just double stacked like filming time <laughs> Well, yeah, he thought he thought that's his like dream movie. It's like this huge historical epic about China and Hong Kong and all this stuff, and uh, and then he just made these like random love stories on the side. And he is now by far more famous for these like scatterbrained extra movies that he made on Good the side. Um, but then after those succeeded, he tried to make one very well, and this was made in like two thousand six or so. I didn't write it down, so that was stupid of me, but. So that's what In the Mood for Love. It stars Tony Lung, who was in the recent Marvel movie, um, Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. He was the villain. And uh, he's a, the most famous, probably, Hong Kong actor in the world. And then Maggie Chung, who plays the female actress. Both of them go move into an apartment building right beside each other, by coincidence. <laughs> and they're both married. Oh. And they find out their spouses are cheating on them with each other. And that's probably why they ended up moving in with each other. Yeah. Is that like their spouses concocted it to live it's in all a ploy. the same building or whatever. To cheat easier. 
And the movie is just this unbelievable mood piece where they talk to each other so infrequently and there's so little to it. But a literal like passing glance in a hallway where like they get noodles from, you can just feel it. Like the 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 eruption of like the feeling of like, I feel something for this other person and our spouses are doing something fucked up. So who are we? Yeah. Who Like what is our situation? What kind of liminal here? space do they inhabit? Yeah. They sit down at a diner and talk about it and they decide what they'll do is act out what they think their husband and wife are doing. So they're like, what, how do you think she would say this? Or how do you think she would do oh, this? Like, fuck. how is she cheating on me? And of course, in doing this, they start falling in love with each other. That's that's a crazy premise. It, it's all about the mood. Like, the feeling of these actors and the feeling of their situation is so evocative and so powerful. And throughout the movie, I just thought, like, I am so, like, captured mm. by this. And then most of it is actually them just living in their apartments, just being horribly lonely. Because you never see their husbands or, or wife. You hear their voices sometimes, but they are just horribly lonely just living in their own little apartments. With In each apartment, in, this is Hong Kong, right? So they live with like 15 other people yeah, each. Yeah. It's like absurd. They live in these like crazy living situations. And uh, they tried, they feel so lonely in such a crowded space. And I think that is one of Wong Kar Wai's greatest powers is to show the space of such a vibrant city and how lonely you could become that... Everyone is just busy doing their own thing. I kind of, I kind of despise that every time we do this podcast, I walk away with double the movies that I watched during <laughs> the weeks between. Uh, because, like, man, that's a cool premise. I love the idea of it's loneliness so well in in films because I think that's something that oftentimes um, a lot of directors struggle with. Oftentimes, like, I feel like music is generally generally played to like force emotions out of people, or like things are shot in such a way where it's kind of like pedantic and you kind of like you're just like oh okay this is the lonely shot but like to to do so in a setting where there isn't a space to be alone is super cool i think too what i respect most about this movie and i was looking up some lists and this movie is the only wong kar wai movie that constantly makes top critic lists and it is often like in the top 10 movies of all time for many critics like i did not realize how beloved it really is but I really understand it after mm. watching it because of how powerful as a film it is. I think the fact that it can't, it would have to be transformed entirely into what it is as a piece of art to be put into words or to be put into things. It's about the camera staring at these characters and just watching their faces, watching their feelings evolve for each other and seeing the vibrancy of Hong Kong versus the loneliness of their apartments yeah. and their small worlds that they are able to keep for themselves. Yeah, it's... This is the final big spoiler. I just want to get to this point. Oh, you're going to spoil it for me? It's, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but crushing, crushing blow here. But I just, I cannot end my thing because it's just, it's the thing that makes the movie for me is that there's a line, they, you know, moves off to that point where the characters say a little monologue or a little parable that expresses their feelings mm-hmm. during the middle of the movie. And so they, they talk about this, that in uh, if you have a secret you have to keep for the rest of your life, how do you do it? And they're talking in the rain uh, under a little patch of overhead. And they're like, we have to go back to our husbands and wife. And um, what do we do? And he says, like, I've heard that Buddhists uh, say this thing where you can keep a secret your whole life by whispering it into a tree into a hole in a tree, you dig a hole in a tree and then whisper it, and the tree will keep your secret for you until it dies. 
And so at the very end of the movie, it's like a 20 minutes, it might be not 20, it's like at least 10 minute sequence of just the guy walking to a Buddhist temple, finding a small hole in it, and just like, you don't hear a word. He just goes up to it and like cups his hands to it. And you just pan to different shots in the temple for like another like seven minutes. And then the movie just ends. Wow. We're- and it's just like, I don't know what they did, but I was just like, I was so moved by the end of Where it. Where did you watch this? Uh, this was in Criterion. Okay. Yeah, I think I still have my sub going. Yeah. I'm gonna, Ugh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to make some time yeah. for this because, wow, I um, it was so good. I feel like I don't have uh many experiences watching things where where someone can get loneliness right, and and not like just like, like sad loneliness, but like the, the actual like apathy of it, right? The actual like the absence, um, because it's so like I said earlier, right? It's it's so easy to frame things. I'm not going to say deceptively, but in a way where you're kind of like leading the witness. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big anime guy. Uh, and so this is going to sound really amateurish, but uh, Joseph, you've watched uh, Evangelion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I absolutely despised it. Uh, mm. <laughs> but what I'll say is okay. that the first like three, the first three to four episodes when it's focusing on Shinji and it's focusing yeah. on setting like, like the setting of of this like post mm-hmm. this post Earth city the, the setting as a, a a mood as an emotion as a, the setting as almost a character those first four episodes where it's focusing so much on how alone he is yeah. is maybe the most effective I've ever seen it done because I, yeah oh, uh, uh, you agree well and that one's more of his father figure versus him so it's a different kind of loneliness in a way yeah because it's about a kid and his disconnection from his family. Yeah. But the other characters also each show their own form of loneliness and it's really well done. Yeah, and I think I think specifically with him though, like they spend a lot of time showing like his morning commute. They, they spend a lot of time mm-hmm. with like these big static, I'm going to say panning shots or like static shots, um, even though it's drawn um, of like the city and it's just empty. Like there's no one in yes. the streets. There's like all the windows are, are, are closed. There's no lights on kind of thing. And like that was maybe the most effective I'd seen it, and then it became just like robots punching each other. Um, uh, but but yeah, I that is um, that is something that, that that's a thing I, in film that I've wanted to get back to. I want to see more of stuff like that because I feel like it's so um, universal, especially <laughs> during a pandemic. But um, to do so effectively, I feel like without without deceiving or forcing it from an audience is really important. Mm-hmm. Strangely, um, I ended up watching a movie just, I think it was last night or like sometime yesterday. Um, and this is just a super quick, cause it's actually, it's almost just, it's a good movie, but it's almost just feels like a worse version of In the Mood for Love for me now. Um, it was called uh, Umbrellas Under Cherbourg, I think it is, or uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Mm-hmm. And it's a French film by Jacques Demy and it's a musical. The entire thing is sung, um, but it's about two people in love. The guy goes to war and the girl is like, I want to wait for him and I want to stay like we're just so in love family money problems come up a guy a suitor comes in who's like I have money and I love I love your daughter like can we get married and they agree the guy gets back they start she's he's like oh you married someone else I guess I'll start dating this other girl she starts having regrets now like the main girl and so she's like oh actually I do want to be with that guy but now he's with this new girl Uh And so it's just like this misconnection and misconnection things. And then the the end of the movie is them being like, they both have kids, they're both married. And they're like, what did we, 
Like, why did we choose our lives to be this way? Like, how did that happen? Interesting. And it's just like, misconnections like that, like, when you're younger, you really feel like everything will work out in the end. But I think some of the most powerful movies I've watched are often about these things where you make one strange mistake or you make one commitment in your life that's wrong. And unfortunately, you can really mess up the rest of your life and come to regret it. It's been a long time regretting just one moment that could have changed the whole trajectory of things. Interesting. And so those are often some of the more more powerful movies for me. But Mm -hmm. I'm such a sucker for like a super tragic, super bittersweet ending. Like that's very much my vibe. I think that's the, the best thing a love story can do in my opinion, mm. is is like not just be like, oh yeah, like they're happy now and they're together. Like the catharsis of, of of the couple being together is never enough, I think, to carry generally most of the weight of a movie like that. But to make a love story tragic is and not in just like a like a mm. he died, she stayed alive kind of way mm-hmm. is really unique. Tragic but not sappy somehow. Yeah, like tragic in a way that's like that's like lingering though, right? Like like mm. a, a death is 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 you know that's a sudden hard stop that doesn't that right. th- there's no build up there's no continuation it's just there it is it's gone. But the idea of misconnections, especially in that sense where it's like you actually get the scope of a life lived well, and you still have that lingering regret like that undertone of blue throughout the whole thing. That's really cool. All right, uh, I think we'll head into the final movie oh the showdown and i'm not sure how i edited this but like it might be a long episode so far yeah <laughs> because of all of our tangents it might be spicy but i think the the theme will continue to be love and uh, love loneliness and tragedy yeah <laughs> as we move into the love witch yeah which was our yeah very cool esoteric pick for these things and i'm really glad we discovered it because it's such a bizarre, bizarre, special gem of a movie. Like, it's just so different than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lydia picked a gem with this one. Uh, it looks like um, we looked up some of the stats during the movie, but it was like it it prob- we couldn't figure out how much it cost to make, but, but we know it made nothing. Mm. Uh, but but despite that, Love Witch was I, th- I thought it was a banger. Lydia, do you want to do you want to yeah, do you want to kick it off a bit about it? Yeah, so The Love Witch is a movie that came out in 2016, um, and it is about a witch who uses magic and spells to try and make men fall in love with her, and inadvertently, or, you know, in some ways you could almost argue that it was, like, intentionally has um, sort of deadly consequences. And it's just about her journey navigating love and feminism and mm. sexuality, like female and... sexuality through this, like through this, like sort of vintage lens. But a yeah. lot of like modern philosophies on the subject. Yeah, how would you describe the like the the aesthetic, right? Because it has this like yeah, it's it's very much like a love letter, and and this the woman mm. who directed it. Every movie that she's done and short film that she's done has been sort of a love letter to 60s, 70s B-movies-ish, like teen romps, I would say. 60s, 70s teen sex romp movies seems to be Mm. like the homage that she goes for consistently. And and this one, The Love Witch, is in the same vein. The aesthetic is very clearly 60s. All of the fashion is very, like, 
mid-60s, maybe early 70s, the makeup choices, the hairstyles, everything is very 60s, 70s in aesthetic. And the film techniques feel very intentionally vintage. Um, like oh, yeah. it, it feels like it was filmed on a vintage camera. The green screening that they do when they're driving a car is... Like, you you could put on any movie from the 60s, any Hitchcock film, any Marilyn Monroe movie from the 60s, and you'd see a woman driving a car, and the background is like this floating right. image of a California countryside. Um, yeah. And that's and that's what we're doing here, right? So it's, it's a lot of really intentional choices, and then a lot of weird choices that I can't tell if they are intentional or if it's budget constraints. Yeah, that was something that we kept coming back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, was it's like, the funny it aspect sort of, of it. It sort of takes you out of it takes you out of the narrative when you realize mm-hmm. like, no, this is actually modern day. Like all of your main characters are driving these old 60s, 70s vintage cars, like vintage Cadillacs, vintage Mustang. But then the cars on the street are like 2015 yeah, the, fucking Mazda. You're like, there's a bunch wait, of like hatchbacks on. and sedans. <laughs> hold on a second, because there's like 18 soccer mom SUVs on this street corner, and I don't really understand what's happening. Um, yeah. And then like one bitch just pulls out her fucking iPhone. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> but that shows you that it was intentional in the end for it to be in the in the modern sure. time period, but just with a vintage look. But for if, sure. why? The question so, why is yeah. so. The choice, it doesn't make any sense because if it is intentional, they're not saying anything with it. It just feels like mm-hmm. like they wanted it, like this this director wanted and loves 60s movies, but still like didn't understand how to write a story without modern conventions in it. You know what I mean? Like they're like, I can't figure out how to move the plot forward without this person utilizing a cell phone because you can't find <laughs> a fucking payphone anywhere to save your life in this country anymore. So I'm just gonna have her have a cell phone, even though prior to this everything has seemed like it's nineteen sixty seven. That's what it felt like. I would make an argument that even the the duality there, like the because we because the one thing that we kept coming back to was like it looked like an episode of like original series Star Trek. Like uh, down the outfits, the, the makeup, some of the effects, yeah. yeah, yeah, like the the makeup, the outfits, the 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 way the hair is styled, the way they're the way um, things are shot, framed, even the sound quality uh, feels like you're watching like a canned episode of TOS. But I think maybe even if the technology choices were intentional, if we assume that they are intentional, we could probably assume that maybe the the director like wanted the aesthetic of like sexual revolution and like like sexual yeah. freedom of like that Which, era clearly and yes. like um yeah but but also wanted to kind of map it against like the the more modern critical view we have on like uh like one of the characters is clearly one of those like creepy male feminists who's like yeah no like we need to embrace femininity and like and like be sexy but not for not for me do it for you but do it in ways that appeal to men and like many of the characters i feel have like this um i'm sure these ideas have been around forever but these very there's a lot of dialogue in the movie and it's said almost like exposition like it's very theatrical in that sense where it seems like it's playing off like some modern feminist theory and i I think that's why it's done is like the duality of like we want women to be free that way but we also want to hold them against this really archaic Mm -hmm. i get i do get what you're saying i do totally understand what you're saying there I just think if you were making that intentional choice where you wanted to frame 
the 1960s sexual revolution against modern feminist theory and use both vintage and modern cues to do that, you would have pulled in more modernity with it instead of just like one shot of a cell phone and background images of cars (laughs) because it just makes it look like you either can't figure out how to move the narrative forward without having a cell phone in that scene or you don't have the budget to remove the modern day cars (laughs) out of the background shots because it, it can be pretty amateurish like i i just i wish it would have been a more cohesive integration of that sort of like lost in time vibe that we got from like the retro futurism and possessor which i do think did well that a yeah, really yeah effective say. job of this sort of lost in time vintage meets modern concepts in like sci-fi and horror whereas the love witch didn't feel inventive but or here okay here's my way. I, I do have a different opinion on this. And I think that the most charitable reading, because I think it's too absurd that she knew she was showing these cars. She knew she was showing the cell phone, which literally, like, you could obviously avoid that. To me, it must be that she enjoyed the schlockiness of it <laughs> acting like a B-movie, a B right? It's like, it is a movie set in the 60s. And they couldn't, quote unquote, they couldn't afford to not allow for modern shit to show up. But why? Because it's funny. It's weird. It's bizarre. And one of the things that I I was checking out a review was saying was that, because I didn't notice this as much, but in the review, they pointed that tons of scenes have purposefully badly done editing cuts where she'll like unzip a shoe and then the next scene. I called that out. You did. I called that out multiple times. She unzips one go-go boot and takes it off and it's one tracking shot. It never moves Mm -hmm. off of her. It never pans Mm -hmm. away from her feet. She unzips one boot, takes the boot off, and then leans down and takes the other boot off. And she never unzipped it. And it's suddenly unzipped. Like her, her, the eyeshadow colors change multiple times in the same scene with different actors where like their makeup is just completely different. Mm-hmm. But the camera never panned away. It's just a fucking jump cut. It's, yeah. it's I pointed it out multiple times and I'm fine with that. I think that's it puts you in your like Bella Lugosi, Vampirella, like totally mm-hmm. that vibe of your Ed Wood movies. I'm fine with that. I just wish they had pulled through those like modern aspect aspects a little bit more gracefully if that was like the intent. Because otherwise it just feels lazy. It comes off but isn't, easy. If it, it the, the gracefulness is almost the exact opposite of the point. I mean, here's what I, I like how Possessor did it, right? But, but Possessor and other movies have already done the lost in time. You, can, you can't tell. You don't really know what era you're in thing. I think in this, it's so clearly meant to be the 60s. And so we're supposed to take that, okay, her love letter is to this very era. So she's anything she like i mean this is a way to hide any mistake of course but it's like anything she's doing that is a, a slock a schlocky mistake is probably in in an effort to evoke the feeling of those movies and the fact that some of them are so purposeful just makes it so obvious that that must be the case like the cell phone is just ridiculous i just think that that's like a super charitable read of a movie that like i don't know if there was that much effort put into the thought process for it is my point Oh, but I think it's just, I don't know. It, the the B-moviness is so clearly done lovingly. I, it just, that I agree with. I do agree with how that. How could you not have noticed all the cars and stuff like this? Like, it, it would just think, become um, absurd. I think the healthy middle ground might be that, like, because they could not avoid 
mm, either yeah. either budgetarily or or like functionally they could just because, be admitting their own yes their own position yeah because like because functionally many of the sets are too big for them to block off like like some of them yeah. are they found these really interesting town squares with like really old-timey storefronts and facades um with unfortunately like very modern cars and like if if by nature by I'm virtue still of them convinced is the same place they shot they shot the tracking shot at the I'm beginning of that. gremlins it I'm is the same <laughs> town square as the tracking shot at the beginning of gremlins i um, swear to god <laughs> we should we should we should uh reconvene we should actually double check on that i will check um, i will take i will look at screenshots of both we're and recording compare. in a week so um but uh yeah i think i think if 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 by virtue of them just not being able to 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 do it they probably had just had to force it into the plot at some point that's that's my that's like i almost like that theory better i just i feel like if they had at least done the cell phone twice I think it would have bothered me less. It's like in the That's last fair. like it was inconsistent. Thirty five minutes of this fucking two hour movie, they drop a cell phone and it's like, come. You, you could yeah, have given it's... it to me two times and it wouldn't have irritated me nearly as much. It's inconsistent enough that 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 you have to like. Part of me wants to be charitable and say like we're we're hyper focusing on this, but yeah. part of me wants to say that like we're being. That I, like that I'm being too charitable by saying that it's intentional because it's meant to dissociate us from the time period and say like like no like think about the the themes objectively not just the not just the camp of it but um Which but yeah I, it is it is in so inconsistent right I don't it, it's like know if that's if that's too charitable of a read I mean I do think like you're seeing a lot of more modern feminist theory placed on top of this like 60s sexual liberation you know, second wave feminism. So I do, I do kind of think you're getting both the modern and the retro perspective on, on feminism and sexuality and, and all of this stuff. I, I, I do think that that's what they're, you know, sort of trying to do here. I just, I think aesthetically they leaned so hard into the mid sixties that if the purpose of having sort of the, the modernism is both to evoke like the schlocky low budget B movie, we can't afford proper backgrounds for our sets mm. but also bring in the modern lens beyond just you can't like have the both theory. it's a cake and eat it too yeah problem. yeah it's, especially it's, considering they don't lean into the 60s they, well, they fall into it right that's they, what i they, mean they right dove in you you so. have to do you have to balance both sides pretty reasonably well if that's if you're trying to both visually assert this sort of layering between yeah. these two theories like the modern and the retro theory of 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 feminism if you're trying to create a visual through line for that you have to balance it really really well and they just didn't mm. do that you know what i mean That's like they, they could have done something like it follows which is a bit of a lost in time but is very much balancing female sexual liberation of the 70s as well as like old school slasher films with like this modern lens on femininity sexuality and safe sex and that that was done like really really well and it gives you sort of this really nice balance between the time periods and those theories this is like all 60s campy schlock and then you get a cell phone and some modern yeah. theory on feminism that's it's like, like finding not a hair in your food. really kind of delved into too aggressively yeah um that aside though um i don't know if i have many complaints about this movie no i and mean I'm i loved it like, i'm being so i'm usually critical. pretty critical um yeah like we hyper focused on the on the on the one kind of uh nitpick i think probably all of us share but i don't know like 
the whole time I was getting the good the good juju from like the yeah. uh, from the vibe. Star Trek vibes. Like yeah. there's a set in the movie that stuck out to me, which was um, it's it's like a it's a night it's a it's a not a nightclub it's a it's bar a but it's also like a club. Bur- yeah it's a burlesque club so already it's out of time because i you won't find those around really but also like it's got like the really shitty low pile carpet like red carpets everywhere they're really shitty low pile or like like uh you know synthetic curtains the bar is basically just (laughs) just like one slab of wood it looks like it looks like they 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 lifted all of this material directly to the time period and this goes for every set when it looks like Um, a set you know it looks like someone just just hammer together this it, 10 second set. You know oh, what it looks and they're like? They're so me? good. It kind of looks like a church basement. Mm. Yes. A lot of the sets have that vibe. Much of the sets, all, all of them, I think, that's the best part of the movie, if you ask me, is like uh, all the sets are dense with detail, uh, like foreground and background. There's like texturally, color wise, all of it is super uh, bright and busy and interesting. Um, despite the fears some people might have about like the 60s aesthetic and also like the pacing of like content from that time this movie is consistent like there's a consistent through line i was never bored no i i mm-hmm. as critical as i am uh being of it i i very much loved it for the aesthetic alone i mean i love a good b movie i love a good like retro grindhouse flick like that's very much my vibe so it worked really really well for me it's not a perfect film I don't think the narrative is, like, amazing by any stretch. And the acting, like, just as a warning, is aggressively wooden. But if you Mm -hmm. like old movies, it feels, like, very consistent. You can tell that this was made by somebody who, like, really, truly loves movies from the 60s and 70s. They're an expert. Yeah, 100%. I just don't know that they're very effective at writing, like, a super impactful narrative but the movie is incredibly entertaining if you love nostalgia. Yeah, just yeah. To, I, I pretty much have the same opinion as you, Lydia. It's like absolute love letter, so intricately done and so beautiful. I do think there's a question that remains in my mind where it's like there's this fantasy of this character, Elaine, the the love witch, and her journey and, and stuff. And then there's this mix of the modern feminism and these questions, right? And it just... It doesn't quite reach each other by the end of the movie for me. I just can't understand. Like, for me, in a way, it's like how I visualize it is someone watched these old B-movies and was like, there is something modern to say here. Like, there's something about certain characters in their femininity at that time, which can be transported into the modern and be like a really interesting lens to look at modern feminism, to look at Mm -hmm. a thing. But it just doesn't. I don't quite get the actual commentary. That being said, as a creative piece of art, it is so aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Such a vibe. You feel completely transported. And so it's just like, it's just great for this type of movie. Like having to see, if you see, if you watch even 10 seconds of the trailer of this thing and you're into the vibe, that's the movie, right? Like the the trailer is such a good representation of the type of movie you're going to be watching from beginning to end. I agree. I agree. I think. I think mm-hmm. it's. I think it's endearing. I think it's very, very charming. I think the aesthetic, like it's such a vibe. It has such a fun energy. I just. I don't think the writer director 
is quite there yet in how to connect these sort of esoteric ideas that they have with like an actual narrative structure and like doing this sort of connection between the modern time and the and the retro b-movie vibe i think that you know i mean i've seen movies that have done this before that i think have done it probably better i mean i think mandy is a really good example of like a love letter to 70s sort of B-movies um, while bringing in sort of a modern aesthetic and doing the it guest. really, really effectively. The Guest, I think, is probably one of my best examples of it, where it is clearly a love letter to 1970s grindhouse films. And it is so effectively transported into mm-hmm. like a modern lens while keeping everything that's endearing about the 70s grindhouse film and like really making it an effective layering of the two of the two worlds. I don't think this this director either hasn't figured out how to how to meld their ideas and and create sort of an interconnected message between modern feminism and like the 60s sexual revolution or they haven't figured out how to bring in sort of that modern aesthetic into this like love letter to the 60s mm-hmm. and like it's they need to do at least one of these two things effectively for it to be like a truly good film but like you said as as a piece of artwork it's stunning it's gorgeous. Everything is on point, but it does feel like a costume piece to me and not necessarily yeah. a film. It, it's, it's very adept at connecting its themes to its imagery. So like the movie spends a lot of time portraying femininity as like motherly, sisterly, like there's, there's, an, there's like an intense sexual energy about it, but also like this kind of um, <clears throat> like old world i'm eastern european so this this idea of like the seers and like the the um like the the, the magic of femininity yeah. which which um the dark mother the paganism <laughs> um yeah so it connects a lot of the actual uh the, the themes um that it explores given given that frame of reference to like visual imagery which is really cool like much of the film um focuses on how the main character wants to be loved and is of the belief that you need to give men what they want to receive their love. And every time she does so, uh, the men basically crumble into these babies. They, they become, uh, not not physically, but they, they start to just basically like use her first as a sexual object uh, and then dispose of her and treat her like like she's their mother. And they start like yeah. they start griping about all their like their regrets and their 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 fears and that kind of stuff. And she's sitting there in a lot of scenes just like this fucking guy, he's just a kid. Like, there's nothing more to him. And then they, they juxtapose those kind of scenes almost almost back to back to back with these scenes of like this very low rent kind of satanic love cult that like evokes like like not just the satanic panic that followed it, but the actual like kind of the grassroots movement of of like early like Levee Satanism. Uh, and that's where you start to see like they they take those themes of like this like supernatural feminine aspect just juxtaposed against like a cult that is run by a man who is creepy to his women and like cherishes their body and their their femininity but also in such a way where it is for his own gain and for his own pleasure uh in a way that he sells it like it's empowering it's interesting because like throughout the whole movie they managed to do that they managed to like tie femininity both to magic but also to this thing that's been co-opted there's but a, here's the thing, like, they're clearly, like, trying to have a conversation around these modern ideas of feminism, like toxic masculinity and internalized misogyny. But I, I feel like by the end, 
we've seen no real legitimate growth or change from mm-hmm. our main character, Elaine, where like she she okay. is discovering the toxicity of what she's doing, kind of, but it's all sort of negated by the end of it. Like it's yeah. all sort of just, okay, and I've fulfilled my duty and and I the dialogue the doesn't grow yeah she, like there's no there's no change there's no like realization of like oh i want these men to be in love with me in a way that is like by her ideals objectively feminine like i want them to love me the way a woman loves a man but when they yeah. do that and they unburden themselves and they are emotional and in touch with their feelings and truly love her even if it's like as an emotional crutch she thinks they're too womanly. They're too effeminate. They're not men anymore. So I don't want them. And then, you know, they die, but she takes no responsibility for that. And then she finds a man who is completely adverse to her sexual wiles. And it does nothing for him as far as like falling in love with her. And he's still like aggressively manly. And she doesn't want that either, but there's no sense of irony here. Like she doesn't understand that like, the aggressive masculinity that she's looking for is like a polar opposition to the like obsessive love and like incredible emotional depth that she's trying to find. Yeah. And she herself actually has like a really predatory role too through the movie. Like she, she is often, they do this really, this really interesting cut that is like lifted from the time period where like, she'll be looking at, at like she'll turn her head and look at a man and then like, it'll cut to him and he'll be like laughing and smiling and he'll look over too. And then it zooms in on her eyes. And it's just like this huge blocky square cut of just like death stare. Again, it kind of plays into this, like women as like a predator, like as a sexual, pre- like not as like in a, in a, <laughs> not as way, a sexual as, like, predator. A, no, not as a sexual predator, but as like, as like a dominant sexual force. And then, and then she promptly like flips the switch and plays like, the kind of goo goo doll thing. Well, yeah, until it's doing the she gone gets girl, wants. like cool girl. It flips. Shit. It it, it flip flops quite a bit, and it and it's it's it, her character is like kind of schizophrenic throughout the movie because of that. Like you like it, the story only progresses because of that inherent like nature to her character. But again, like like Lydia was saying, like it I, I think it drops the ball when trying to like elaborate on certain concepts because it yeah the movie and she, the character can't seem to decide what. She just feels she like plays. she has no sense of self by the end of it. There's no self-understanding. Mm. Like, she's she's mm. really gone no distance by the end. Yeah. And, like, there's absolutely zero irony in her understanding of, like, why it didn't work out with either type of man. Mm-hmm. Like, th- there's no acceptance that, like, maybe her ideas of femininity or sexuality or love are, like, inherently problematic. And I no, think I, yeah, that I... that's the message that we were trying to get. Well, I, th- I think she's not meant to learn the lessons per se, but as a viewer, I do think the final relationship does show something different where she in a way gets what she wants and yet <laughs> it, it, you get this weird duality. You get the catharsis of her enacting her full witchy powers or full her dream. She enacts her ritual. spoil it, right? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying yeah, it without she... trying to spoil it fully, but she enacts her ritual. But at the same time, you get this other side of like, she gets like this weird feminist full witch ideal sort of thing. And it's completely unsatisfying and tragic in a stupid way. And yeah. You're just like, oh, and so it doesn't feel good. But I, 
I think in a way, I don't think the author's doing a perfect job of this, but I think, again, as a charitable reading, for me, I saw a bit of her own view, <laughs> her own view of- Hiding from the centipede. <laughs> the type of feminism she was seeing in, um, and I do think it's very different than feminism today in, in a certain way. It's very second wave, Wiccan, um, things like this. And there was, especially in the San Francisco area where this is uh, done, there is there was a huge feminist movement in the um, Wiccan stores and witchcraft stores of that area. Yeah. And Which so, are shown throughout the movie, or yeah. there's one particular one. And the character makes potions, yeah. likewise. And we don't, it's a very personal type of feminism. And that also has some of those stereotypes of like the, the woman who, they're not about being an activist for general feminist stuff around the world. They're very about personal, like personal freedom and liberty and the ability to be your own woman um, and to live in your own way. And so, and I do think that's the type of character Elena, she, she doesn't care at all about other people or her own thing. She's just completely enraptured in her own journey on this, you know, this alchemical witch witchcrafty journey <laughs> yeah, her of her bottle. of her life. Of her <laughs> love life. Um, at, at one point she does like the movie does to that to that to your credit, the movie does do a moment where it frames the women who are witchier and the women who are like new to the witchiness. Yes. Uh, uh, juxtaposed against other people who I you, I guess you could consider burlesque like an offset of like sex work. And like the, the burlesque people who are not part of like the witchy cult, they're probably the only women you see in the movie who are not, aside from like the the, the main no. kind of foil to the main character. Yeah, yeah, Trish, yeah. And they're just and they're just as critical of the main character as well as like the very supernatural kind of um, witchy people who hang out in the burlesque bar as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of this double-edged sword of like, yeah, like all the weird stuff that's happening is kind of the witch's fault and like we're just trying to do like an honest work with our bodies and these people are coming through making it all weird and magical yeah basically nobody likes elaine yeah it, it, in the end she really is a pariah even amongst her own people but largely because she's a murderer yeah uh, I, I think i think it's fair to spoil the ending and say that like she spends the movie um like hunting down man after man not necessarily in a murdery way the murder is tangential to her goals to try and get what she wants and she gets multiple different types of men the movie starts and she's already offed her first boyfriend who was possessive and abusive um the next guy she meets is he's kind of like a like a bit of a fiend he's a bit of a sex fiend but he's also like you know he's the wine and dine type and the next guy is um a married man and the last guy's a cop and that uh, from each of them, she she tries to get what she wants, and she and and they they disappoint her. And the last scene is her like literally cutting out the heart of the cop, and that's the the moment where she's like, oh, I have what I need now. Like I have my princess moment, which is something that she wanted. But yeah, like like Joseph said, like that ending wasn't satisfactory. It didn't feel like the payoff for all the things it was trying to say. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, despite that, I still think it's fun and watchable and uh, and worthwhile even despite being like two hours long. I do think it, it drags a little in the third yeah, act. The payoff couldn't have been fun either though, but yeah. yeah. If the payoff was just fun, then it's like for sure it wouldn't have reached. Thing. Like it should, well, it depends what you're looking for, but like the story to me was never going to be a like, hooray, we're cutting out men's hearts. Like yeah. that's no, the solution. I, I, didn't, 
I didn't think it was yeah. going to be that either, but I did think that there would be some sort of like satisfaction in the ending. Yes. Not necessarily like, yay, men are dead, but just like some kind of satisfying close. And, yeah, like and she becomes the, the Grand Witch. It. Right? Like there wasn't a moment where she kind of ascended beyond her desire to be happy from what she can get Honestly, from other people. Like, if she had cut out his heart and then cut out her own, I think that would have been more satisfying than just her like staring blankly, like with a smile on her face. You know what I mean? Like, I think that yeah. would have bookended it nicely and felt like not that she necessarily learned something, but that she sort of understood that she was a foil to this character and it would tie those two things together. And yeah, we didn't like even really have that. Yeah. It did. It did it, I, yeah. You go ahead. I, yeah. I, again, I, I, what I what I'm trying to say I don't think I don't think it accomplishes the full goal of explaining the themes or whatever but I do think there is something a little more there she, she, I mean for me she's not just staring blankly right she's is recounting certain things and she's in delusion right she's she's not just sorry she's not recounting she's in her full fantasy of this is getting me to like this ritual is getting me to my she basically just wanted to live the strangely like stereotypical woman's life but took the route of becoming a witch to do it. And so there's a strange juxta juxtaposition the whole time of these values. And actually, I think one of the most horrific but interesting characters in it is the Aleister Crowley um, stand-in, the cult leader who of the witches who is a male and is like constantly abusing his power to things. And she, in a way, is a pariah amongst the witches in a way only because he's their leader and is kind of like, are you rejoining the group? Are you going to be with us in the way that oh, I true. pleases me? No, she, then she doesn't play go on your that. journey still. He do, she doesn't right? play it's into the whole like dramatic. Like, need, but yeah, yeah she, she doesn't play into the like you need to give me something to be part of the cult. She doesn't want she doesn't let him abuse her and that's what makes her a pariah. In um, a way, his um, girlfriend or whatever you call it, the, like the queen of the, the them, is the cooler she's the cooler witch. Yeah. But in a way, it's like she has to give up her freedom with this guy. And you have this horrific scene where she's being kissed at every part of her body as part of a ritual. And you know, you know, it's in a pro like, you know, it's wrong. Yeah. They played off and it's, and it's clear that like, she is the focusing lens for what he wants to do to other women. Like he has deified her as, a, as something that can be modeled after, which is the grossest part. The, the movie certainly like sells itself like a horror movie, the realization of that is probably the most horrific thing. Mm. Uh, at least to my recounting, I'm I'm getting fuzzy, but um, yeah, like yeah, I, I, I feel... mean, maybe ultimately I'm being too hard on the on the love witch. Um, no, no, I think you're being fair. It, I it's, meant it's... Uh, on Elaine as the character, not the movie on a whole. <laughs> oh, I do okay. think the movie's not perfect. Like it's far and away from perfect, but I think it's a lot of fun yeah. and it's really great. Um, but maybe I'm being too hard on her character. I do think. The way they showed her sort of indoctrination into that cult when she first got into the witchy vibe, I think I think that was really effective in showing how sort of unsettling and disturbing this cult was and that it's like mm -hmm. a patriarchal cult filled mostly with women and this one mm -hmm. dude sort of taking advantage <laughs> of the sexual liberation There's going a second on at that dude time with his dick out. <laughs> Yeah, and there's like one old like gimly looking guy. Yeah. Um, Sorry. 
<laughs> but like it's mainly it's mainly women. It's like yeah. mainly women, and most of the nudity is women in that cult. And it's like very clearly at like a patriarchal kind of like man sitting at the top situation. And you can tell how badly our main character Elaine wants to be in this cult. Because you can see how uncomfortable and how frightened she is going through this ritual. And yet she grits her teeth and goes through with it so that she can be part of this community and ends up being a pariah anyway. And I think that is interesting. The unfortunate part is I do think that message is like a little bit lost because she's also partially a pariah because she's fucking murdering people. (laughs) And like the purpose of this cult is that it's a love cult and she's like abusing sex magic in a way that is causing men to literally lose their minds and they are aware that she's like making men fall in love with her and then dropping them because barbara knows she doesn't know that they're that she's killing them but barbara knows that she's like make using love magic to make these men fall in love with her and then dumping them the minute they don't meet some impossible standard that she's made up that's why she's a pariah. It's it's it is in part that like she's not going along with like Alistair Crowley dude's sexual like abuse or whatever. But I think that message is lost when it turns out that she's like abusing magic and murdering men. Yeah. Like Yeah. By 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 product of having to have a have a plot, it it, it also hamstrings what it's trying to do. It's I think if it was ultimately focused on just this cult and they had leaned into that and didn't have her like literally murdering men, I think that might've been a more interesting narrative overall. And I think it might've been a little more cohesive, but I do think you lose a lot of what makes it sort of campy and really fun, which are these like using magic to make men fall in love with you. And then the con like that, that is the fun part of it. But the actual message I think is lost because of it. Yeah, and there's there's obvious there's a lot of places where you could easily snip the footage from too if you wanted to make the plot more cohesive. But I I would I would argue that the Renaissance Fair scene is worth having just because it's so yeah. so dumb and fun. Uh, the my first thought was like where like we kept saying, could you imagine just wandering through the woods and coming upon like <laughs> fifteen people doing this one weird thing? Oh, yeah. And that Renaissance fair was like the perfect example. <sighs> because it's literally like it's under twenty people hosting a full fledged Renaissance fair. And so it's like going super ham. weirdly sparse. It's like really tiny and like really sparsely like occupied. So it like uh-huh. makes it even weirder. <laughs> Yeah, they make it count, and like my first thought was like, "That's the scene that could, they could cut to to like make the movie more concise." But then I was like, "No, that that scene was beautiful and odd and hilarious, and it needs to be there." That movie, that movie almost encapsulates all the the most fun elements of the movie, where it's like you've it's got that in mm-hmm. the tea room. Like, yeah, the you tea could room is so yes. cut out the tea room scenes, and like it would be a tighter movie. Like you didn't need them. But they're, but they're so cool. most yeah. aesthetically beautiful scenes. Like they're just so cool and weird looking. They're because it's so well assembled. We're in this movie that's supposed to look like the 1960s, and then they put you in this tea room that, like, the tea room is themed, and the theme is Victorian. So it's like you're in it's you're in modern time watching a movie that was made in 2016. That is like meant to look like a movie that came out in 1967 with a scene in it where the theme of the restaurant 
is the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. And it's just, like, so unnecessarily layered. <sighs> and I love it so much. And these, and these two ladies are just like, oh, I love Victoriana. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it yeah. so much. God. I love it so much. And they're all in pink. Everyone in the background has terrible wigs on. Yeah, there, there's many scenes in this movie where you could snip out a single frame and it'd be just gorgeous. Like yeah. many of the tea room shots. Yeah. It's amazing. It sounds like overall we all enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating movie. Yeah. I yeah. think compared to something like The Guest, I think it for me, it's more artistically interesting and has more to like talk about, but way less entertaining. Um, yeah. And so the entertainment, you have to enjoy the aesthetics and just enjoy the vibes because the actual plot and characters, because it's trying to be wooden, because it's trying to do certain things, can get a little like, you're not getting the normal suspense juice, the normal like things that you get yeah. in a lot of classic fun movies. Yeah. yeah. It's kitschy, it's camp, but it's not necessarily like a, an entertaining narrative. It's not going to satisfy any desire you might have to like grow your understanding of a subject or a time period it's just it's just like fun to stare at fun to think about uh and fun to watch as it kind of happens but yeah it's uh yeah it's not it's not like one of those high high art uh (laughs) like no no okay maybe i take that back I, i think it is probably up there when it comes to just like how the actual cinematography and like the the way the whole movie was assembled but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't do much to I think expand on uh, many of the subjects it touches with touches on. But then again, I'm a dude and probably not the most well read. You want to send I us think off, Lydia? Effort. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do want to watch the Love Witch, uh, it is in Canada at least available on Amazon Prime through the AMC Plus channel subscription, and. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter uh, at Fans Lab Pod and pretty much all other social media except Facebook. Just look up our name. You'll be able to find us. Uh, and we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of the episode, what movies you want us to, to watch. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.